Good afternoon, everyone. It's great to be back into church history after taking a month off. Uh, we're going to go ahead and open up with a reading from Scripture to start off with. So if you'll open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Uh, Luke chapter 1 and verse 26. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26, the Word of God says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And she was greatly troubled at the saying, and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin. The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Amen. All right. Well, as is our custom, we like to uh, open up our time in studying church history with a prayer taken from the pages of church history. And so this afternoon, we'll be led in prayer with the words of Basil of Caesarea, also known as Basil the Great one of the saints that we will be uh, meeting with this afternoon. So let us us turn our hearts to God as as we pray along with our brother Basil. As I rise from sleep, I thank you, Holy Trinity. Through your great goodness and patience, you are not angry with me, a sinner who fails to act. You have not destroyed me in my sins, but have shown your love for humanity once again. When I was flat on my face in despair, you raised me to face the morning and to glorify your power. Now enlighten my mind's eye and open my mouth to study your word and understand your commands. Help me to do your will and sing to you in heartfelt adoration and praise to your most holy name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, now and forever unto the ages of ages. Amen. All right. Well, we're continuing on in our survey of church history. As you walked in, hopefully you grabbed a, uh, an outline. Does anyone need a copy of the outline? I think we're all good so far. Oh, we need a couple in here. Yep. That will be helpful as we, as we go along. 
All right, well, last time we traced out the history of the Arian controversy from its outbreak at the Council of Nicaea in the year 325 through the life of one of Nicaea's greatest apologists, Athanasius of Alexandria. Athanasius would die in the year 373 before the controversy was finally resolved. And we saw how the church was dramatically affected by who is in power and whether his sympathies lie with the Nicene Orthodox or with their Arian opponents. Athanasius, you'll remember, was constantly being sent off into exile and being recalled. It seemed every time someone knew came to the throne. Well, one of the reasons for this, this back and forth, is that those rulers who were more orthodox in their beliefs generally adopted what we might call a hands-off approach to church affairs. They understood that they were not priests, they were not trained in theology, and so the theologizing, they believed, should be left to the bishops and the pastors of the churches. Well, this is all about to change. Theodosius, a Roman general, is appointed emperor over the east in the year 379. Remember, at this time, Rome is administratively divided between east and west, each half has, having its own emperor. That's in the year 379. The following year, in 380, he issues the Edict of Thessalonica. And the edict uh, reads thus. Emperors Gratian, Valentinian, and Theodosius Augusti. Edict to the people of Constantinople. It is our desire <clears throat> that all the various nations which we are subject, uh, which are subject to our clemency and moderation, uh, should continue to profess that religion which was, which was delivered to the Romans by the divine apostle Peter as it has been preserved by faithful tradition and which is now professed by the pontiff Damasus, that is the bishop of Rome, and by Peter, bishop of Alexandria, a man of apostolic holiness. According to the apostolic teaching and the doctrine of the gospel, let us believe in the one deity of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in equal majesty and in a holy trinity. We order the followers of this law to embrace the name of Catholic Christians. But as for the others, since in our judgment they are foolish madmen, we decree that they shall be branded with the igno ignominious? Close enough. Ignominious? Yeah, yeah, thank you. Ignominious name of heretics and shall not presume to give to their conventicles, that is, their, their church gatherings, the name of churches. They will suffer, in the first place, the chastisement of the divine condemnation, and in the second, the punishment of our authority, which, in accordance with the will of heaven, we shall decide to inflict. So for the first time, a secular Roman law is issued that defines the boundaries of orthodoxy. And notice that this Catholic Christianity is marked out as monotheistic, the belief in one God, and Trinitarian, as defined by the scriptures and the tradition of the church, and as demonstrated 
in the West by Damasus, uh, the bishop of Rome, and Peter, the bishop of Alexandria in the East, and, you'll notice, enforced by the threat of punishment. This will eventually open the door for Christian rulers to start persecuting those of other faiths. Uh, Here is the germ that would sprout into the wars of religion that would dominate Europe in the aftermath of the Protestant Reformation. We also see here uh, the seeds of what would become uh, the Roman Catholic papacy. If uh, faithfulness to Christ is defined by your, uh, your faithfulness to the Bishop of Rome, or the Bishop of Alexandria, um, we could see how that would develop through later years into uh, the the medieval Roman Catholic papacy. That was 380. In 381, the following year, Theodosius would call for another council at the imperial city of Constantinople, what would come down in history as the second ecumenical council of the church. Now, while while we remember Constantinople for its death blow to Arianism, that was far from the only issue on the docket. There were certain administrative affairs that had to be dealt with, uh, things that you're probably thankful we're not going to get into, Uh, and there were other theological errors that had to be addressed, and these we will look at. There was the Christological heresy of Apollinaris, who denied the true humanity of the Lord Jesus, and there was the pneumatological error, that is the error of uh, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, uh, those who were called the spirit fighters, or in Greek, the pneumatomachi, who denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. A lot was at stake at Constantinople. Athanasius, he had passed from the scene in 373, but in his place, To carry the baton of Nicene Orthodoxy were a trio of theologians known uh, to church history as the Cappadocian Fathers uh, because they all come from uh, the region of Cappadocia, what is now modern-day Turkey. These three, we usually uh, lump them together. Basil of Caesarea, called Basil the Great by future generations. Uh, His younger brother, Gregory of Nyssa, and their friend Gregory Nazianzus, uh, called Gregory the uh, Theologian. This afternoon, uh, for sake of time, we'll be considering the two friends, Basil and Gregory Nazianzus, and their contribution in the combat against Arianism, Apollinarianism, and Pneumatomachianism. So, we begin first with uh, the spirit fighters, what is called the Pneumatomachi. Don't blame me. I don't come up with these names, all right? I'm just reporting these to you. Obviously, they didn't choose their own name either uh, because the Greek means spirit fighters, and no one wants to be known as that. Well, these heretics denied the divinity of the Holy Spirit. In the West, they were commonly and more uh, easily pronounced uh, Macedonians from the belief that this teaching originated with a semi-Aryan bishop of Constantinople named Macedonius somewhere around the year 360. Uh, Just in brief, they taught that the Holy Spirit was a creature created by the Lord Jesus and that he was uh, the servant of God. 
Now, uh, I know this was like three, maybe four months ago. Uh, does anyone remember what the Creed of Nicaea had said about the Holy Spirit? Does anyone remember? It's okay if you don't. It's, f it's five words. And in the Holy Spirit. That was it. The Holy Spirit, that's a thing. That's all they wanted to communicate. They didn't think anything else needed to be communicated at Nicaea. Once again, we see uh, how God in his providence uh, allows these heresies to develop that forces the church to come together and to think more deeply um, and scripturally about what it is we believe. Um, while many apologists trained their guns on this heresy, including Athanasius in the last decade of his life, we want to consider primarily the efforts of Basil of Caesarea, Basil the, uh, the Great, as we introduce the first of these Cappadocian fathers. Uh, as far as his life goes, a uh, very short uh, overview, he was born to a rich, upper-class Christian family. It was a family known for its piety. Uh, Basil and four of his siblings in later years, just to give you an example, would be venerated as saints by the church. Basil's father died when he was a teenager, and he was sent off to finish his education abroad. It was during this time he became good friends with Gregory of Nazianzus, uh, the other Cappadocian that we will consider this afternoon. Um, he was in uh, uh, Cappadocia, I believe, for a time. He went to other places as well. He ended up in Athens, uh, for about six years, again with, with Gregory um, as, a, as a peer. It was also during that time they had as a fellow student um, the young man who would become Julian the Apostate, the Emperor Julian the Apostate. Uh, setting up shop as a lawyer and a teacher shortly after his education, he had an encounter with the bishop Eustathius, uh, who was renowned as a charismatic ascetic. Basil quit his secular profession, goes on tour with Eustathius to visit the monasteries in the east, and somewhere along the way, he is brought to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Reflecting on his conversion, Basil says this, he says, I had wasted much time on follies and spent nearly all of my youth in vain labors and devotion to the teachings of a wisdom that God had made foolish. Suddenly I awoke as out of a deep sleep. I beheld the wonderful light of the gospel truth, and I recognized the nothingness of the wisdom of the princes of this world. It's striking how Basil came to this conclusion after an encounter with Jesus Christ, whereas Julian the apostate, uh, the exact opposite. He wanted to be known um, by history as a, uh, a philosopher. Basil returned to his father's estate where he established a small monastic community, including his mother, his sister, and eventually his good friend Gregory. Uh, eventually, he would be called to minister in the city of Caesarea, where he would become bishop in the year 370, and where he would serve until the end of his life in 379. It's a very uh, 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 overview sketch of his life. 
Well, regarding the controversy at hand, the new Matamaki, one of Basil's most important works is called On the Holy Spirit. Now, in this book, Basil begins by establishing the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son. Now, the Son is co-equal, co-eternal with, and thus worthy of the same honor as the Father. He then demonstrates that the Holy Spirit shares in this same rank. We are baptized into the triune name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as we read in the Great Commission, thus evidencing that the Spirit is one with the Father and the Son. Basil writes, The Lord has delivered to us a necessary and saving dogma. The Holy Spirit is to be ranked with the Father. To deny this baptismal truth, this truth that brings us into the family of faith, Basil says, is to deny the faith. Whoever does not hold fast to this confession as his sure uh, foundation at all times to the end of his life makes himself a stranger to God's promises. Uh, For us, we, we... hear about these controversies, and we we can tend to chalk them up to uh, overzealous bishops, uh, theologians, arguing over small matters. For Basil, this controversy about the nature of the Holy Spirit is not just a matter of philosophical sophistry, but it is a question upon which our very salvation depends. He who rejects the Spirit rejects the Son, And he who rejects the Son rejects the Father. He goes on to demonstrate through Scripture that the Holy Spirit shares in the divine name, I'm I'm sorry, in the divine nature, being all powerful, all knowing, everywhere present, incomprehensible, unchangeable. He shares divine names. He is called the Lord in numerous passages. We refer to the Bible as the Word of God. Why? Because it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. We count our bodies as temples of God. Why? Because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. He does divine works bringing to perfection what was purposed by the Father and accomplished by the Son. This is seen most clearly in his work of salvation. Because the Holy Spirit is united by nature to the Father and to the Son, he can bring us sinners who are separated from God. He can bring us into communion with our Creator. Basil writes, if we are illumined by divine power and fix our eyes on the beauty of the image of the invisible God, speaking of the Son, and through the image are led up to the indescribable beauty of its source, talking about the Father, it is because we have been inseparably joined to the spirit of knowledge. It is the spirit of who works in us the grace that is necessary for salvation, which he can do because he is God. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is worthy of all honor, glory, and worship. 
He is divine in nature, infinite in greatness, mighty in his works, good in his blessings. Shall we not exalt him? Shall we not glorify him? On the contrary, he says, who is so perverse? Who is so devoid of the heavenly gift, so unnourished by God's good words? Who is so empty of sharing eternal hopes that he would separate the spirit from the Godhead and number him among creatures? Basil is not slow to remind his opponents of the seriousness of the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, Basil would die in 379, just shy of 50 years of age, but his influence was clearly felt at the Council of Constantinople in the year 381, which would be presided over by his friend Gregory of Nazianzus, who we now meet uh, in this next controversy. The next heresy that we'll consider is that of Apollinaris. Apollinaris started out well as bishop of Laodicea. He was uh, an effective advocate of Nicene Orthodoxy, an ally of Athanasius. Sometimes that would get him in trouble, being uh, uh, so close to Athanasius. Firmly committed to the consubstantiality of the Father and the Son, Apollinaris began asking the question, how can Jesus be both God and man? Well, this question of Christology would come to dominate the next century of church history. And in those struggles, the church would come to work out its doctrine of what we call the hypostatic union, that Jesus is truly God and truly man. In the words of the Chalcedonian definition, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, unconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, the difference of the natures being in no way removed because of the union, but rather the properties of each nature being preserved. We'll, we'll get to the Chalcedonian definition uh, in due time. But this is the classic orthodox position, that Jesus Christ... Uh, Though one person is both God and man, one person with two natures. Well, in his zeal to defend the divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ against the Arians, Apollinaris overcorrects to the point of denying his true humanity. This is a lesson for us that as we are zealous, Uh, to maintain the the true orthodox teachings of the faith. Uh, We don't want to be so overzealous that we go uh, the opposite and and run into uh, other errors in in our zeal, like Apollinaris does. Following Greek pagan thought, Apollinaris believed that man is composed of three parts, a body, a soul, and a mind. We typically think of man as being a body and a soul. Um, I haven't studied that out too much, so if you have questions about that, maybe one of the other uh, brothers here can can speak to that more. Uh, The controversy with Apollinaris is very confusing. Uh, If if for any other reason than this terminology, um, these words uh, uh, soul and uh, mind, 
or soul and spirit are sometimes used interchangeably. Uh, mind and spirit are used interchangeably. It makes it very confusion, uh, confusing. So uh, if I can try and simplify it to the best that I understand it, uh, as far as Apollinaris is concerned, uh, man is a body, a soul, and a mind. What happened then at the incarnation? The Son of God, the divine logos, the divine mind, took to himself a human body and a human soul. So if man is body, soul, and mind, Jesus was two-thirds human. A divine mind wrapped in a human body and a human soul. Jesus was mostly human, but not fully, not truly human, according to Apollinaris. Well, now we meet Gregory of Nazianzus. Like Basil, he was raised in an upper-class Christian family, but Gregory's family was actively involved in church life. His father was the bishop of Nazianzus. After his education and a brief stay with his friend Basil in uh, uh, Pontus, Gregory returned home, where, thanks to the prodding of his father, uh, he's ordained into the ministry. Later, he would be invited by uh, Basil to Caesarea uh, to help combat the rising tide of Arianism there. Uh, the two of them engaged in public debates. Some of them were moderated by uh, the pro-Arian Emperor Valens. Uh, after uh, Basil becomes the bishop of Caesarea, in order to consolidate his position um, as the bishop there, uh, he creates uh, the See of Sassima, probably not pronouncing that right, but that's okay, um, and he appoints Gregory as the bishop there. Now, there wasn't much in Sassima. Uh, it was definitely more of a political move by Basil in order to, uh, in order to keep his influence, and Gregory kind of felt betrayed by his friend. He described it as an utterly dreadful, pokey little hole, a paltry horse stop on the main road, devoid of water, vegetation, or the company of gentlemen. This was my church of Sassima. Well, eventually, Gregory would receive a call that he felt worthy of as bishop of the imperial capital of Constantinople in the year 379. As bishop... He presided over the Council of Constantinople, but his appointment was so controversial that the council threatened to disband because of it. Uh, so Gregory chose instead to resign, um, and he returned home to Nazianzus. Uh, he would continue as the bishop of Nazianzus in the place of his father uh, until he retired there in the year 384, and he would spend the remaining six years of his life writing and collecting his letters. He died in January of 390. <clears throat> well, among his major writings are a collection of letters that deal specifically with this Apollinarian heresy. He writes, For we do not sever the man from the Godhead, but we lay down as a dogma the unity and identity of person, who of old was not man but God, and the only Son before all ages, but who in these last days has assumed manhood also for our salvation, 
passable in the flesh, impassable in his Godhead, limited in the body, infinite in the spirit, at once earthly and heavenly, tangible and intangible, comprehensive and incomprehensible, that by one and the same person who was perfect man and also God, the entire humanity, fallen through sin, might be created anew. On the contrary, he says, if anyone has put his trust in Christ as a man without a human mind, remember that's what Apollinaris had said, that Christ had a divine mind, not a human mind, um, Gregory writes, he is really bereft of mind and quite unworthy of salvation. That's not a nice thing to say, but sometimes uh, you had to say not nice things. And the reason is this. For that which he has not assumed, he has not healed. And that which is, not, uh, that which is united to his Godhead is also saved. He goes on to argue that the Christ of Apollinaris... Uh, would do just fine if only half of Adam had fallen. But, he says, if the whole of Adam's fall, uh, nature is fallen, or if the whole of uh, Adam's nature fell, it must be united to the whole nature of him that was begotten, speaking of Christ, and so be saved as a whole. He says, let them not then begrudge us of our complete salvation. I don't, I don't just need a partial salvation. I don't just need, if we follow uh, 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 Apollinaris' anthropology, I don't just need my, my flesh and my soul to be saved. I also need my mind, my spirit to be saved. Uh, not only is my flesh and my soul fallen, but my mind is in just as much a need of a Savior, if not more. He goes on to explain how it was the mind of Adam that had received the command not to eat of the forbidden tree. And it was the mind of Adam that went through the necessary gymnastics to move his body and soul to transgress the command of God. Biblically, we read in Hebrews chapter 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Christ, partook of the same things. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's uh, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, uh, 16 through 17. If the humanity of Christ was without a true human mind, then he cannot be said to be like his brothers in every respect. But Basil says, or Gregory says, if he has a soul and yet is without a mind, how is he a man? For man is not a mindless animal. For Godhead joined to flesh alone is not man, nor to soul alone, nor to both apart from intellect or the mind, which is the most essential part of man. Keep then the whole man and mingle Godhead therewith that you may benefit me in my completeness. 
Well, Apollinaris would point out that the scripture limits this likeness in the incarnation to flesh and blood. That's what Hebrews 2 says. He partook of flesh and blood. Not, the scripture says that the word became flesh, not flesh and spirit. But Gregory would counter by pointing out that these terms, uh, flesh, soul, spirit, often when they're speaking of, of mankind, they're, they're used as uh, synecdoche. I hope I'm pronouncing, Aaron, am I pronouncing that right? Aaron's gone. <laughs> yes, he, I got the thumbs up. Synecdoche, uh, that is declaring the whole by the part. Um, when someone gets a brand new car and they say, hey, come, come check out my new wheels. They're talking about the whole car. They don't want you just to go look at their wheels. That's synecdoche, where you use a part of the thing in reference to the whole. That's how these words, flesh, soul, and spirit, are often used in the scripture. Uh, so that when Moses says that the family of Jacob, uh, 66 souls, went down into Egypt, we shouldn't just assume that they left their bodies behind. That's, that's not what happened. Uh, or that when the scripture says that God is the God of all flesh... Uh, that there isn't another God of souls out there. Um, all flesh and uh, a soul in the other instance, these are synecdoches. They're used in, uh, in reference to the whole person. When we read the word, that the word became flesh, we shouldn't isolate flesh from the rest of humanity. Uh, the word became flesh means that the Son of God took to himself a complete human nature. Well, Apollinaris would die a year after the council of Constantinople, and not long after him, so would his heresy. Though the Apollinarian controversy anticipated uh, the great Christological debates that we will encounter um, in future church history lessons, that really dominates the next century and the next two ecumenical councils. Well, drawing our time to a conclusion... The Council of Constantinople uh, concluded uh, the Creed of Nicaea was affirmed with additions in order to clarify the position of the church on the nature of the Holy Spirit. So uh, if you go on Google and you type up the Nicene Creed, this is usually what you will find. It's not the Creed of Nicaea that we saw in 325, but it's what is commonly called the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed of 381 that was affirmed at the Council of Constantinople. And the creed reads like this. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one substance with the Father, through whom all things came into existence who because of us men and because of our salvation came down from the heavens and was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary and became man and was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate and suffered and was buried and rose again on the third day according to the scriptures and ascended to heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father and will come again with glory to judge living and dead of whose kingdom there will be no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and life giver, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son is together worshipped and together glorified, who spoke through the prophets in one 
holy, catholic, and apostolic church, we confess one baptism for the remission of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. So even though Arianism would, uh, uh, throughout church history, manifest itself again and again in the Socinians of the 16th century, and the Unitarians of the 19th century, modern-day Jehovah's Witnesses, nonetheless, the shape of Orthodox Christianity from here on out would be decidedly Trinitarian. All right, and that's all I have.